Bordy. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. Our guest today is Mel Nichols, Team GB Paralympic cyclist, endurance wheelchair racer and adventurer. Just 15 months after taking up wheelchair racing, she was at London 2012, representing Team GB before going on to do the same in Rio. Last year, she nailed the London Marathon in under two hours and also broke the world record for hand cycling the whole length of Britain. She's battled strokes, heart surgery, extreme weather and plenty of bad planning for wheelchair access in airports to travel the world finding the adventure in absolutely everything mel nichols is on the big travel podcast my name is mel nichols and i'm a paralympian wheelchair racer and hand cyclist and ultra endurance cyclist we're here in greenwich in the ibis hotel <laughs> in your very tidy room actually i'm quite impressed yeah um, you were packing to go i was yeah, yeah ready to go yeah and you've just completed a half marathon mm-hmm in your is it a specially adapted chair i'm guessing it's wheelchair racing yes it's a racing wheelchair mm-hmm. with with your hands yes yes and i think with you um it's, it's a temptation to jump about in time but i want to start most recently because mm-hmm. this i've spent this morning watching your beautiful film called dream big mm-hmm. and it's about your 2019 adventure of uh, a world break world record breaking adventure as it turns out mm-hmm. hand cycling the lengths of britain the film is just incredible it's showing at the uh, four seasons film festival screening on monday the 16th of march and it's just a fantastic film of your what looks like an incredible journey. Why don't we start with with that journey? Great, thank you. Right, where do you want to start? Well, how was it? Oh gosh, so you're setting off from Land's End, which looked grim, and I even that <laughs> was, was like the that was like the first five minutes. You had me almost in tears because I can see you've got tears in your eyes mm. when you're setting off through. I'm guessing nerves, excitement, emotion. How are you feeling? Well, it was kind of nine, ten months of building this project. You know, I had this idea, I had this plan, but that was as far as I got. So I had to build everything around it. I had to make it happen. So I say it had been nine, ten months. Actually, it had been 11 years. You know, it had been since my last stroke. So this whole journey had got to this point. So the morning of, of setting off, um, the night before I hadn't, I couldn't sleep at all. My body was just sort of on edge and sitting on that start line. And yeah, the weather was grim. We were waiting for it to get light. It never did get light. <laughs> so I just wanted to get going. And everything was going through my head. Mainly, I think I just wanted to hide away from the world because although I'd had this great idea and I'd built this plan, it had got massive. And all of a sudden I was like, who do I think I am that I can do this? How can I break a world record? You know, cycle nine days. It's never been done before. And I just kind of wanted to get in the sea and, you know, thought no one's going to notice. <laughs> But actually, as soon as I set off, um, as soon as you know, the countdown went and the, the clock started, I was just cycling. That's what I do. So, so what's the route? It's over 800 miles, is it? Yeah, just under 900 miles. Uh-huh. Um, you can basically choose whatever route you want as long as you start at... So you can go either way, um, as long as you start at the signpost and you finish, obviously, at the other signpost. And as soon as the clock starts for the Guinness World Record, then it's, it'll keep going no matter what, whether sleep, stopping, start, whatever, um, until you reach the, the end point, the signpost. Um, so, yeah, you can choose your route. Obviously, you could choose... For me, it was about choosing the, the fastest, the sort of flattest, which was the main roads. It wasn't the most scenic route. You know, you could go maybe a more coastal route or a, a, perhaps on smaller roads. But for me, it was about 
It was about performance. It was about breaking a world record. At one point on the, uh, the film, you get stuck on the M6 and almost arrested. That yeah. looked quite hairy. Yeah, it wasn't quite the M6. It was, I think it was the A74M. But um, it was a road that you definitely should not yeah, be on. Yeah, apparently, yeah, ones with M on the ends of motorways. So <laughs> I've learned that you shouldn't I don't know why they don't spell that out. Exactly. Put an M at the beginning. Exactly. Make it more clearer. <laughs> and you almost got arrested. And this yeah. lovely scene, you seem to win over the police. <laughs> yeah, it took a while. Um, <laughs> and they were fantastic. You know, they were just looking after us. They wanted to get us safe, and thankfully they did. I'm so, so grateful to them. Um, it was actually the second sort of potential police incident of the trip. I think there were three in total. <laughs> um, definitely the closest call. And yeah, it was kind of. Uh, Obviously, when, when they, they we got, got it called in, they stopped us. Um, and actually, it was thankful to my charities that I was raising money for that we got let off. I was getting um, done for dangerous cycling and the, the drivers were getting done for dangerous driving because obviously you're not allowed to be on the motorway. We didn't mean to. It was a complete accident. But thankfully, yeah, um, they, they saw the, the what we were trying to do, the good with it. So You lie, you lie very flat on the bike, mm. don't you? And to me, that I mean, I, I look at cyclists who are sitting up on a bike mm. and to me, they look vulnerable. Yeah. But lying flat on a bike, flat on your back almost, you're, yeah. very, you're very, very low in the road. Do mm. you feel vulnerable? Because I'm guessing you are vulnerable yeah. to traffic. Well, I guess I could say, well, if somebody hit a standard cyclist, it's going to hurt, isn't it? So they're vulnerable, I'm vulnerable. If you're a horse rider, you're vulnerable. If you're a walker, you're a runner, you're a mum with children, you're all vulnerable, aren't you? Um, yes, I am, but so is everybody else. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's not about us not using the roads as long as we're all sensible and, and we're you know sharing the road it's about everybody being aware and being respectful i won't stop you know, it's what i do I, I train i cycle on the roads yeah it definitely can be scary you've got to do everything you can to keep yourself safe I before just, we uh, give away the end because uh, spoiler alert you do break the <laughs> world record um what was the best bit about the journey as a, as a travel experience what was mm, the best bit from the travel point you know of there view? were loads of best bits there really were i think the the best a best bit which perhaps I expected was the fact that I was cycling. I was riding my bike every day. You know, it's something I do anyway, but I was going, I wasn't having to sort of start at home, do a loop and come round. I was doing on a journey. And that feeling of being on a journey is fantastic. So you sort of, you get up and you're on your bike and you just keep riding forwards. And then, you know, you stop at the end of the day and you do it again and you do it again. And it's so simple, that kind of simple uh, notion of adventure or whatever it is on a journey is just wonderful. I think perhaps the unexpected, as I said, I went the, the main road, so the most direct route. It was big, big roads, dual carriageways, um, going through sort of the big cities. And I didn't expect it to be very scenic. But you know, it was. There was magic. There was nature um, sort of everywhere in the in the little roundabouts in the cities, or even on the dual carriageways. I'd like so the, the wild verges with wildflowers, and I could see the bees and the you know, little wildlife and stuff. And it was magical. It really was. Because even though I'm racing, I'm, I'm you know going as fast as I can. I'm still on a bike. I'm not in a car. I haven't got you know this box around me, so I can just take it all in. And That's it was incredible. It, it? When, the, when you're in a car, you're so boxed off. Yeah. I feel that. I don't drive. Mm. Well, I don't drive a lot myself and try to, you know, take other forms of transport, mainly mm. walking for me, so mm. to just appreciate the journey and, like, being yeah. part of... Because you don't feel like a part of something. If you're, not at all. Especially if you've got the windows up and air con on exactly. and that sort of thing. Yeah, and for me, it was about, you know, a lot of my kind of... My mental attitude, I suppose, was about being in the moment, and that was all part of it, you know. And when it did get tough, it's like, just look around. Look where you are, look what you're doing, look what's all around you. 
is incredible, yeah. I think your mental attitude has, you know, got a lot to do with the, the way you, you're, you've thrived, mm-hmm. you know, since your, your first stroke, which we'll talk about in a second. But tell us, tell us about the record. So how you smashed the record. You <laughs> actually absolutely smashed it, didn't you? Yeah, I guess I did. <laughs> the male and female record, Yeah, I so say. the female record stood at 10 days and 8 hours. The, the male, the Guinness had set, you had to, I think the male was 10 days. Um, so I obviously planned for 9 days. You know, obviously clearly it hadn't been done before, but I kind of had this idea that I knew I could ride 100 miles in a day therefore in my although I'd never ridden two days of 100 miles I thought well if I could do one day I could do two days and that's kind of how I did the journey really and that once I got over day one I thought well I can do that again once I got over day two I thought well I can do all of that again so you kind of double it so that was the plan but actually each day I I was able to do more miles I just felt good I just I could just wanted to push on so I did for many reasons partly you know because it was always good to have that bank of hours if, if ever I needed it if there was a mechanical or a navigation error or you know the weather was horrific um, most of the journey so there might have been a time that it was so bad I, I had to stop or I couldn't carry on but also yeah if I have that sort of bank of hours if I can sort of chip anything off I think I knew the ninth day uh, was the was the shorter day. Potentially, in the best best scenario, I could just take a bit off and make it just eight eight days and something. But yeah, came in at six days, twenty two hours and eighteen minutes, which is basically four days yeah. less than any other record, the male mm. and female records. Absolutely <laughs> amazing. It was incredible. But that's the thing, though, about the weather. You know, if you mm. attempted to do it somewhere else, like you know, in the <laughs> south of France or something, yeah, I'd like to do it again, yeah. maybe with better weather. But you never know what you're going to get. And there's, there's, you know, maybe the the fact it was such awful weather made me push harder. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's get this over. Yeah. Um, so let me take you back before we talk about your other your travels, particularly. But let me take you back to was it 2008 when you had your my last one, your last, last stroke. stroke. Mm-hmm. So what is? Tell me the the stroke history. What happened? Um, so I've had three major strokes and um, the first one 2002 I think it was and there's and then the, another one the next year and then quite a while afterwards um you know the, the first one it was never obviously found the reason why um a lot of tests a lot of kind of assumptions um it carried on and there was actually quite a big gap uh, and until the most recent stroke and when that had happened thankfully um you know things were looked into a bit more and, and found that I had a heart defect which was what was causing these strokes so um unfortunately it was the last one although they'd all affected me and they'd all affected my left side um the previous two, I could I could still walk. I could still, you know, I learned to ski. I could I was running and all the rest of it. But it was the last one that took away my mobility and uh, my balance and and more kind of mobility side of stuff and physical stuff. What mobility do you have? So my my left side, my left leg doesn't work. Um, my left arm doesn't work very well, um, and I kind of have no balance. So I always fall to the right, which is very weird. So kind of both sides are affected in, in different ways. So my right leg, you know, I, I still have use of my right arm. Um, so I walk around on crutches um, or in my my wheelchair for sort of further distances. And you were watching the Beijing Paralympics mm. when you got a was it a jolt out of when it was almost like a booming voice saying this is what I want to do how did it not happen? really to be honest um I spent a lot of time You're in, in hospital. hospital yeah yeah <laughs> there's, there's not a lot else to do other than watch tv and it was uh I remember the summer of sport and that we had it was one of the Wimbledons that just uh Federer and Nadal matches that just went on I think for days you know and and, and I loved kind of watching the sport and I've always been active I wouldn't say particularly sporty but you know love being outside love being active love being fit 
And so I loved watching the sport. And then, of course, the Olympics and the Paralympics came on. And I didn't really know anything about the Paralympics before then. Um, you know, it hadn't been on my radar. But, and it wasn't that I watched it and thought, I want to be a Paralympian at all. Because I thought, for one, I was going to get better. You know, I'd recovered from my previous strokes. I didn't know how long it was going to take. And I didn't know perhaps how much. I just, I guess I assumed, well, I've been through this, month, this once. It's rubbish, but I'll just have to go through it again. But it was watching, watching the guys at Paralympics. It was just the fact that whatever they perhaps impairments or whatever they didn't have, that was not coming into it. It was their determination and their passion for sport and what they were doing. And it just made me think, well, rather than waiting until I am better, whatever that better is, what am I going to do now? So that's kind of the start, I suppose, of me just getting back active and getting fit again. And just, was it only just 15 months later mm. that you... Um, not from there, yeah. From so then. I I was in hospital a long time. I was um, at home. I, haven't, I had sort of care of seven days a week. Um, so it took a long time um, in the early days. I had heart surgery and stuff following that. Eventually, when I was slightly weller, then I had my um, carers and that used to support me, taking me to various sports that were available that I found out about. And wheelchair racing was one of them. So that was in, I think it was the end of 2010 sort of time that I tried wheelchair racing. Um, only ever saw it as an alternative to my sort of nightly jogs. I used to love running. I was never very good at it, but it was kind of get, off, get home from work, put my earphones in, run through some puddles, you know, feel better about the day. So I thought, well, I can't do that anymore, but if I've got a racing wheelchair, I can get in my chair and, you know, whiz around the block. Never thought anything more of it than that. There was quite a social circle with that. You know, I met my coach and he was always very supportive, but great fun as well. So I'd, I'd go down to training just, just for the social side, really, and the fitness. Um, and he obviously saw something in me, knew, you know, had a bit more an idea, sort of kept, kept doing it, kept competing or started competing. Um, and it was a, yeah, very speedy 15 months later, I got the call to say I'd been selected for Britain, Great Britain. Just 15 months after starting wheelchair yeah, racing, yeah. you were in the GB Paralympic team. Yeah. And london 2012 mm, yeah that's incredible that makes me shiver <laughs> the whole london 2012 thing makes me shiver you yeah. know it's such a um such a beautiful moment for Absolutely. our country yeah and also for paralympics as well because mm. i think it really put i hadn't i certainly hadn't watched any paralympics before and no. i think that a lot of people you know would say the same and definitely suddenly, i felt that with you know, it was only because i it was on the tv when i was in hospital in, for beijing but like, you wouldn't know about it if it's not yeah it's not something you haven't got people involved in it then but london really really changed that so were you at that opening ceremony then, I'm assuming? Do you know I wasn't? Because <laughs> no. I was just about to ask you what was it like, because yeah. it was amazing. I was down the road. Well, where we oh. are now, you know, we're only like a mile away. Amazing. No, do you know what? I still haven't seen it. Uh, seriously? <laughs> no, because, um, so we weren't allowed to go, um, the GB team, because um, a lot of us had uh, events quite soon. So although it's fantastic, and of course you want to soak up every single moment, you're there to do a job. So but they, they didn't want us, you know, out there sitting, Enjoying standing, yourselves. whatever. We're just kind of getting tired, you know. It's great, but of course you're, it's energy that you need to be focusing on, on what you're there for. So, no, we had like a private party in GB House in Stratford. Um, I think we were in bed by kind of nine o'clock. <laughs> and what was it there? What was it like actually when you did get into the stadium to perform? Oh, it was amazing. Perform? I want to say perform. Did mm. we say perform? Kind I kind of, of felt like yeah. it, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. I think I remember when I... Uh, when I finished my, my first uh, race, my heat, and I had an interview, and I, I don't remember saying it at the time, but I've read it since, and I'd said, I feel like a rock star. So, you know, it's kind of that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, that last, I was there for the last night, and I had a, quite an attachment to the Olympics because I had my first child mm. after several miscarriages in July 2012. But oh. in the run-up, 
to that. I'd been filming a lot for mm-hmm. corporate films and things in, in the, the stadium and watched it all grow. I'd filmed, I'd interviewed and spent a day with Oscar Pistorius. He oh, was a wow. lovely man by yeah, all accounts yeah. at that point. That's what I thought, yeah. And um, he was lovely. And, uh, and then at the very last day, I saw I was there for the last day of athletics for the Paralympics. Mm-hmm. So the next day was the ceremony. I was there for a last day mm-hmm. of sport. And in that stadium, it was just like, wow. And then, you know, Oscar did his thing. And mm-hmm. that felt like the culmination of it all. Yeah. Obviously, it all went a bit wrong yeah. for, you know, him. So I think that was probably the Thursday, it. wasn't it? The Thriller Thursday, they called it. I, I, was it? Yeah, my heat was on that evening as was well. Was it? Well, Absolutely so I probably incredible. saw you. you probably did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was sitting in the audience with a five-week-old baby, oh. you know, and it was just with headphones on. He was wow. crying all the way. I think I was crying all the way. Yeah. It was just so, it was overwhelming. I was crying too. <laughs> I, I can't imagine what it would have been like to be there, mm. you know, in everyone watching you mm, it's strange and I, I watch back sometimes if I see people play a bit of film or something at an event from there and and it's it's not just a memory it's a feeling it's amazing and I'm actually getting it now when I yeah, talk about it like you had the you know the, the torch in the stadium as well and every time you're in the stadium, you can feel the heat from that torch and it just <sighs> the smells everything just absolutely incredible I kind of try and liken it again to being like maybe a concert and you and it it's not just listening to the music there's that feeling isn't there there's but it's like a hundred times more you know than that incredible that, electric yeah. almost yeah electrifying. really is yeah there's a if you go to the museum of london they've got the torches there remember mm. the opening ceremony that you weren't at it had the uh, the beautiful <laughs> tulip torches that opened yes. into a big uh, flower almost and then they closed them at the end mm-hmm. and they've got those actual torches in a big room oh, have they? and they play footage of the opening and closing oh, ceremonies on oh, repeat and that. honestly it just gives me chills i was, I was so there sad when they put that flame out on that I I know, I know. <laughs> yes. That flame seemed to like go out for a lot of things for yeah. the UK after that. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like, you know, that was at such a high. It was such a it high. Really wasn't was, it really was, wasn't it? I'm not talking about much travel, but okay, so <laughs> this is travel and London is a place of travel. So after that, four years later, mm-hmm. you went to Rio. Mm, yeah. yeah. How was that? Um, didn't go to plan unfortunately um i mean so i obviously i wasn't on the british team before london um london was my first my first time i represented gb it was my first championship uh, event you know to, to actually start at the top was a bit crazy um but as soon as london had finished i was on the british team and and day one was about rio so that next four years was everything was about rio that was my you know my full-time job was to race i i was working at a school so i left the school and it was just completely focused on my training um and it was fantastic i mean i hadn't ever done a four-year cycle on olympic cycle so I didn't know what that was going to be like um actually it goes really quickly <laughs> I'm sure. uh, in the between uh, we had European championships world championships um I, I think I broke a rec- world record three times on the track so there's a lot going on uh, you're building up to that point and I was in the, the shape of my life going into Rio um the previous year I'd been at world champs um I'd won a, a world silver medal um, so I was going in a really great place. Um, unfortunately, um, as you would probably hear from some of the other stories, um, when I got into the Olympic, the Paralympic Village, then it was about three days, I got very sick. So I put, was put in quarantine and got pulled at my race. So yeah, really, really tough times. We had a lovely girl called Charlie Webster on the podcast. Mm. I don't know if you know Charlie Webster. No. She's a presenter, sports presenter for Sky Sports, and mm. she was over there reporting for Sky. And she got very ill. She was, um, <laughs> she died when she was there. No, but she came. Sorry, I'm really wording this badly. She died, but then was brought back to life. Oh my goodness! She and mum said goodbye. She was flown over, and it turns out she had malaria. She, wow. She'd cycled to Rio. I was gonna, yes, I do know. Yeah, I was yeah, it's quite a prominent. Yes. Yeah, she cycled to Rio. And somewhere in the north of Brazil, 
they, they, uh, she got malaria, but they didn't work out until about seven days after she was on life support. She literally died oh, and her mum was brought over, said to say goodbye. Yeah. Um, and she had made me cry on the podcast. It's such an incredible story. And she's such a, a bit like you, she's you know, a motivational speaker. I remember the build-up to that ride. Yeah, it was really exciting to follow. It was really exciting. Yeah. Mm. <gasps> and then, wow. uh, yeah, she, so she's, she's just incredible. And she's, she's had long-lasting uh, physical effects mm. from here, but she's out, she's running marathons, you know, she's, she's just got to conserve her energy. She's yeah. Yeah, you should. You guys it. should meet. She's oh, very inspirational. Oh, that's amazing. So, uh, from a travel point of view, I mean, did you get to hang out Rio? <laughs> you know, and I think I, you know, I didn't get a fair, um, you know, view of Rio for sure. Um, I would like to go back. I'd like, you know, I, you know me. I, I, well, you know of me that I love the adventure. So. Um, I'd love to be able to get out of there with my bike and get in the hills. And I remember watching the Olympics. Take your malaria tablet. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and watching the Olympic cycling course, it looked proper gnarly, you know. But actually, to get there and, and to just explore that would be amazing. Um, the only thing, and, and actually, when you are in the, the Paralympics or the Olympics, you, you wherever you are, but you're in this little bubble, you're in the village. Um, and it was the same for London. Of course, it was incredible, but you wouldn't know you're in London because you're just in this village. You don't see anything else. Um, and in, in Rio, we were in the village. And on the last day, uh, I was feeling pretty rubbish, but I thought, well, it's over now anyway. And it was the marathon day. So I did get, jump in a taxi and I headed out to uh, Cocabana Beach to watch the marathon come in. So um, I probably didn't get the maybe the best impression. Um, you know, I'm very much of a kind of more of a wilderness person rather than the... the the tourist trail. Um, so tell me about being a wilderness person. What does that involve? <laughs> where, where do you go? What do you do? I just love, I love being outside. Um, I love the kind of challenge of, for me, I think my adventure that I kind of, I guess I say I rediscovered was uh, the time out when I wasn't, when I wasn't racing on track, then I'd try and push those barriers um, in a d- another way. Um, as an athlete, obviously we're trying to push barriers, we're trying to be better than we were yesterday and all the rest of it. But I still see that as, as quite a, a safe environment, especially on the track, you know, track versus the road. But when I'm out, kind of, um, I love to take myself to the Scottish Islands or, or um, over to, even over to France or even further away. Um, it's just challenging myself. You know, I'm completely on my own. No one usually knows where I am. I'm, I'm faced with either a mountain I'm trying to get up or or caves I'm trying to find or whatever it is and think well how am I going to how am I going to work this out how am I going to do this to find a way to get to these places or went off to the fair islands um a challenge to get from island to island when the they're connected through subsea tunnels of kind of 160 metres under the seabed and stuff. I think, well, somehow I've got to cycle through it. <laughs> you get through the tunnels mm. on your bike? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And you're on your own? Yeah. How does that work? <laughs> <laughs> um... Yeah, pretty pretty scary, pretty exhilarating. Um, the, when I went over to the Faroe Islands, my challenge, and that was in 2018, was to, to hand cycle, solar hand cycle, as many of the islands as I could. They haven't all got roads. And I say they're, they're linked either by the subsea tunnels or um, by boats or by helicopters. So it was a real challenge logist- logistically, trying to um, even get from island to island. I, I was going to land on the first island. I had no idea how I was going to get to the next one. Um, and that particular time, that tunnel that was linked, most people, that was the only way to get to the other island. So all, you've got all the big lorries, um, everybody's in this tunnel. Most people said, you know, you, you can't cycle through this tunnel. But there were a couple of people who said, yes, you can. So I thought, well, I will then. Um, and I think it, it kind of, well, it was fine. Oh, thankfully, yeah, it made it no problem. But I didn't really think the fact that it was five miles long and it was 160 metres under the seabed, that I'd obviously have to go quite a lot down to get to it. And my bike was loaded up with about probably 30 kilos um, of stuff on the back as well, which on top of the weight of my bike makes it quite heavy, so it drops pretty fast. And I had set up on my bike, I was trying to be as off-grid as possible, so I had like a dynamo on my front wheel, 
and I had uh, a unit that then charged all my USBs for all, any electricals and also my lights. Um, but unfortunately, because I went so fast down this hill, it made the light explode <laughs> halfway through the tunnel. <laughs> That's really, it could be really dangerous. So yeah, you're wearing I had a few other lights, but on. it was more the fact that I had no lights. But there was oh, a right, few yeah. kind of on the back. <laughs> That's dangerous too. But yeah, yeah. So that was an interesting oh. experience for sure. And mm. I'm also thinking that you have to go down. You you then have to go up. Oh right? yes, that must <laughs> yes. be hard work. Yeah, um, I was really lucky, and that's something that really stood out on the Faroe Islands were the, the kindness of strangers. And somebody had came past me as I was probably sort of levelling out sort of halfway through the tunnel and, and asked me if I was OK. And I said, well, I am, but my lights just exploded. And they said, there's anything I can do, but you're in this really, really busy carriageway. You know, nobody can pull over and stop. It's just not safe. So I said, well, if you could wait the other end, because um, I knew I had another tunnel to do, then that could be really helpful. So they, they, they did, which was great. But of course, I had to go two and a half miles back up again, which took a long, long time. So this poor person was waiting probably a good hour for me. Were they, were they waiting, why, to see if you emerged OK or they needed to...? Be, uh, because I knew that I had to carry on through another tunnel and I had no lights and obviously it wasn't a good idea to be doing this. So, so basically, they had this car. Uh, it was the smallest car I've ever seen in the world. And we managed to put my kind of six-foot-long handbike squeezed in the boot and sort of I held, held on to it as we went along and held the boot down just so we could carry on a bit. You're not letting anything stop you um, but there are logistical difficulties for people who are in wheelchairs people who are not able-bodied you know they, they're mm. disabled really by their environment yeah definitely. and you know what's that like sort of traveling when you're not doing these great you know ad- adventures when you're just doing normal traveling mm. I must admit I as much as I can I'll try I, I'll find a way whatever I'm very lucky because obviously I can stand up on my crutches I can use my crutches and I've usually got those with me if I am just in my wheelchair then that's actually more disabling but not because of my disability like you say because of the environment mm-hmm. um, so sometimes yeah you know maybe trains can be maybe buses maybe London taxis quite often taxis will, will drive past you because they just don't want to pick you up which is really hard you have to have a really kind of tough shell because maybe attitudes haven't all changed yes. uh, for sure I, I like to you know with my handbike I'll, I'll do a journey where I'll sometimes it involves a train journey or part of or something like that and you can take a bike on a train you have to pre-book it and it's a bit of a faff but it can be done so I'll, I'll do that and um, I won't mention that it's a handbike because I know if I do say that then they'll probably say oh we can't do that but why why can't they why shouldn't they it's just it's a bike to me as as anyone else's bike is um, and most of the time it's fine but sometimes you do have to kind of you get to the station and you're battling people that saying that can't go on here and like well it can i'll show you i'll, I'll make it happen so it's it, surprising it's how many even just wandering around london on the tube you know i've done it quite a lot with prams mm. and you suddenly realize that when you can't go up the escalator mm. or the stairs how many how few of the stations have exactly uh, wheelchair access yeah or street to platform access definitely even even sometimes cycle paths can say you know they're a cycle path and then you've got this fantastic sort of slopes so and then you hit a step mm. and then you think well that's it's totally redundant then isn't it <laughs> i love it i spend a lot of time in spain and i love some of the wheelchair slopes there because they're just hilarious they are like you know for sort of 45 degree <laughs> slopes like into, yeah, into the sea or something like that you're thinking, how is anyone like, meant to do yeah. that <laughs> but i mean especially like you know in the uk are, we are pretty good with it mm. but in you know there are many countries that aren't and yeah. you know neither are we brilliant at it here yeah there's always room for improvement for sure where have you felt most afraid when you've been traveling when you when you're not in a tunnel with no lights <laughs> with like lorries bearing down on you oh where have i felt most afraid i can't think of anywhere that i felt afraid to be honest is there anywhere you haven't enjoyed like mm. as a location well 
when I first, the first time I went to New York, I say went to New York, I passed through JFK Airport to go to uh, Indianapolis to race and had a very bad experience in New York Airport. And that really put me off, which was really silly of me. And so I was like, I don't like you, New York. What happened? Um, it, was, it was actually um, an issue with kind of, we had to change flights and there was an issue with uh, our, our race chairs. And obviously, so travelling, do you know what, actually travelling in an airport... Uh, being in an airport as someone with a disability is when you feel the most disabled in your life. That is really, really tough. Very Some countries are a lot worse. Why? Than what is it about it? If if you if you need to have assistance, um, it's quite often the case that they'll want to park you in this, you know, special bay. Whereas you might want to go and in, enjoy yourself, you know, go to coffee or. or check out duty free or whatever and I, I do tend to kind of fight against that and go and do my own thing anyway but you're just you, you don't always feel so much of a person you know you kind of push from pillar to post and you're it's, it's not a very nice feeling very often people have you know talked about being left uh, very often I've been sort of on an aeroplane an and you've got to wait for your chair for whatever reason it's not coming or they don't want to or whatever and, and they've forgotten yeah exactly yeah. or they just yeah they've, they've you know they're on strike whatever it is um and you just want to be like everybody else because you are and it can feel very very different very so and, and when you're flying as well obviously you don't have your chair with you so again because i'm just like well i'm just going to find my way i'll kind of like bum shuffle up and down the air airplane to get to the toilet but it's not the greatest thing and many times you know it's been something's been spilt and you go through wet patches or whatever and you don't know what's on the floor and, and not everyone like can stand exactly. like you so no. you know that must be i've never even thought about that you yeah. don't have your chair of course when you're on the plane that must be make a lot of people feel really vulnerable definitely definitely and because say if somebody's sat in like at the aisle seat or something and then you know they they can't physically get up and you've got people having to climb over you that's you know not very nice so yeah things like that can be tough and of course then when we're traveling with wheelchairs standard wheelchairs tend quite often can get broken but also like race chairs and stuff like that so you've got a lot of equipment so that's always interesting trying to get that on flights and all the logistical sort of side of stuff like that Um, and yeah and so new york airport was kind of an experience like that that there's some there was an issue with the race chairs i think i had to go back to some area or something and, and the, the customs man who was with me was not very friendly at all um, ended up having a bit of a kind of a, a seizure and it was just all a very horrible experience and it really really put me off New York it's funny how really things sad. like that happen but yeah. New, New Yorkers they do have you know they've got a certain attitude yeah you know? and people are people the world over aren't they but you know th- there are stereotypes for a reason yeah it's just that first attitude you get from people is, definitely is, is, is an interesting it was bad of me sometimes. though for judge because I went back to New York in 2016 after Rio um, I was uh, I, I was going for the New York Marathon. I just determined not to let that year kind of end on a bad way, and so I'd planned this this marathon just six weeks after after Rio. And I remember, and I'm not a city person, so you know I like the wilds or the open spaces. But I remember coming off, being picked up at the, um, from the airport, and, and it was in the evening. The sun was coming down, and seeing the silhouette over New York. And I just, I was a proper tourist. I was like, oh my goodness, this is amazing, and I absolutely love New York. Oh, I think it's. If not my favourite, my second favourite city in the world. What's your first favourite? It's got to be London, I think. Yeah, it's got to be London. It's got to be. And, and I'm always so proud of we're sitting here in Greenwich and I'm always so proud when I see the London Marathon on TV because mm. it looks amazing, you know, and the way they, when people come down from around the Cutty Sark is yeah. always like a great moment. And a marathon, I always think, must be a great way to see a city. Yeah, to exactly. Sightsee. 
That's what, what I other think. cities have you done marathons in? Um, like you say, you know, I, I, I'm not really a city person, but I kind of thought, well, I do marathons. That's how I see my cities. I would never go to a city for you know a weekend or a trip or something, but I'll do a marathon. And to be fair, you don't really see a lot because you know you give putting all your effort in, you're <laughs> staring at the floor. Um, but if I do have a bit of time afterwards, then I'll t- have a wander around. So New York, you know, I'll spend the next day and just sort of just push around, and that's lovely. And, and training in Central Park as well. Oh, amazing! Oh, I bet that's. You no, know, we stay really quite central and. And at home, I, and I couldn't go down the high street, um, and I'm in this tiny like, little town in Gloucestershire, but actually I can push in my race chair out of, uh, on Fifth Avenue and push to uh, Central Park and train and then push back again in like, mid- the middle of the day. It's crazy. Yeah, and it's also amazing. there's no cobbles, you know, no. there's no like, tiny doorways, you no. know, it's all straight up, straight down, grids. Everyone knows like, where they're yeah, going. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> you, don't, you don't really get lost in New York like no, that. No, no. So where have I also been? Uh, Seville, that's a lovely oh, one. Seville's amazing. Yeah, oh, I love really Seville. Lovely. Really Was it lovely. hot? What time of year was it? Yeah, it's... Uh, uh, February, so, oh, so it's not right, too not hot, too bad, yeah. um, but it's quite a, a nice. It's, if I do that one, it's like the first marathon of the year, so it's a nice one to sort of um, to start with and see how your training is. Yeah. So you're, you're in the lineup for Tokyo 2020? No, you're not. No, no. Okay. <laughs> so I no, I left the British team. So hand cycling was obviously my last team, but I I left that to pursue things like last year, like the world record uh, challenge. And also, you were first. Like, talking about marathons very quickly, you were the first female last year weren't yeah, you first in, British, in the, female, yeah, first British female real wheelchair racer in 2019 yes London was, Marathon yeah, amazing yeah, yeah. No, it was great and you know when, when you're competing at the, the top level for the games everything, everything has to be about that and I was with cycling so I wouldn't have been able to do my marathons I wouldn't have been able to do any of my challenges I wouldn't be able to do any of the charity work that I do or any of the projects and stuff like that and for me it it was just right that that was kind of where I wanted to take things so um, yeah and I, I still race I still race at the top level you know it's being down here in London now and racing today and again finishing at the Cutty Sark is just incredible so I kind of feel like I've got the best of both worlds really and I will be sad I think you know not being at Tokyo and watching it would be a little bit difficult but I don't regret you know I love what I'm doing now and the opportunities that I can do but also give to other people as well there must have been some dark moments when you first lost your mobility mm. and when you look back from there to now do you it's a difficult question would you would you change anything i mean your life is a is amazing isn't it it's turned oh, out to be that. fantastic i mean obviously <laughs> there's still you know a lot of hard work that goes into it and you have the same struggles as, as many of us do but you know it's a pretty good career let's mm. say would yeah. you change anything? No, I mean, I had a great life before my strokes, but I have a great life now. It's what you make of it, isn't it? You know, and, and a lot of people say, oh, is it because of what happened to you is why you are? And I'm like, no, not at all. You know, I've always been, if I want something, I go out and get it. You know, <laughs> I find a way of making it happen. And that's just your character, isn't it? It doesn't matter you know, what your background, if that's who you are, that's who you are. So I think if the strokes hadn't happened, I think I'd probably be doing some, oh, obviously, well, I wouldn't have gone to the Games, that's for sure. Um, I always wanted to run a London Marathon, so I'd like to have hoped that I would have run London Marathon. I was doing a bit, started a bit of adventure racing, so again, I hope I'd be pushing on these challenges, just in a slightly different way. You know, I can't run it anymore. I can't ride my, my old mountain bike, so I just ride a bike a different way or I race a wheelchair. It's exactly the same as far as I'm concerned. You know, I don't see it as about disability. It's about going after the things I want and finding a way to do it. 
Absolutely. I love stories on the podcast. Have you had, have you got any sort of standout stories from your travels? I do like kind of um, documenting and sharing my, my travels. So whether that's through um, film or, you know, just writing about it and people love to sort of follow along. And although I definitely, I love to go out on these challenges uh, and adventures kind of solo, but it's nice to kind of share the stories. Um, and so there's, a, yeah, there's always something. I remember last year after the challenge, uh, a few, a couple of months after the challenge, I decided I was going to cycle down through France. France. Um, I always wanted to. My mum lives in southwest France, so I always wanted to kind of do that route. So I, I think I, I took a train with my bike down to Southampton and then cycled over to Portsmouth, got on the ferry overnight um, and then cycled off the ferry. And it was fantastic, you know, to do that. But I just wanted, after the Hand Cycle Britain Challenge, um, of having that sort of structure and having that support team that I built around me and everything, which was fantastic. And that's what I wanted to do for that. But I wanted to just strip it back and be about the adventure again. And I didn't want to have time schedules or anything like that I didn't want to have to answer anybody and a few people had said oh let me know I'll come with you but you know I just wanted to go I didn't want to have a plan I just wanted to ride and I had my sort of paper map my road atlas that I'd I'd pulled out and taken that with me and I didn't plan where I was even didn't plan how far I was going to ride I didn't plan where I was going to stop and I love that and I rode sort of similar distances 100 miles a day with all my kit as well and I just got to a point in the evening that, well, I need somewhere to stay. And I'd just like knock on doors and say, my like, worst friend, you know, have you got any rooms? And somebody would like signpost me. And it was amazing, that feeling just, you know, just people, isn't it? People, human kindness. Um, they, they knew of somewhere. They knew if, if they couldn't help me, then someone else could help me. Or just turning up somewhere and uh, saying, you know, is there anywhere I can get some food? No, but if you try, go to this place, they'll make you food. And you go in there and you have no idea what they're going to feed you or how much any of it costs or anything. And just get given these bowls of all sorts of stuff. And, you know, that's just, that's in France, just <sighs> across the waters. But it, it almost found felt kind of a million miles away and it was such the pure kind of adventure again it was incredible do you know what it reminds me of it reminds me of the proper old travelers it reminds me of Hemingway or even Van Gogh you know banging on doors in in Provence wasn't he Um, you know all that that traditional you know I'm just going to set out with a backpack or with my paintings or with my bike yeah violin or whatever yeah violin (laughs) exactly yeah it really reminds me of that and it's really nice to see that people are actually still doing that yeah and it was you know it was real France I didn't want to stay in, in any kind of the, the chains or anything like that um, one of them down in the Loire Valley which I hadn't cycled before which was oh an incredible place um, was this kind of um, basically like a castle it had like a moat and a drawbridge and everything and it was amazing and you you know get the stories on the people that live there and, and, and what goes on in the villages and the real small kind of villages again you wouldn't probably pass through you wouldn't know about yeah, it was really great memories, that, that was. That sounds amazing. Mm. Well, I'm going to ask you my last question, and my last question is always about music, because I often think that music and travel go hand in hand mm. for many people. If you had to choose one song that reminds you of a memorable time of travel, what is that song and what does it remind you of? There's always so much. I think what's memorable for me was on my Hand Soccer Britain World Record Challenge, I, I put, well, I, I set up a playlist um, because I knew there would be times when I'd be really struggling. And like you say, music is so important. It's so uplifting. Um, so I kind of put on this, this playlist and I said to, to my friends and my family and anyone, you know, add songs to it that you will remind me of them or vice versa, or I think might help me. So I never knew what was coming next. Um, and 
And I think the songs I perhaps thought would be my go-to songs weren't always. And there was one song which just seemed to just be the right song that either it came on or I'd just sing it anyway, from The Lion King. <laughs> and it was a song I just can't wait to be king. Oh. And I don't know what about it, but it was so uplifting. <laughs> and that was the one that got me through the real tough times. So every time I listen to it now, I'm like, yes. <laughs> That's brilliant. If I ever go in the car, somewhere in the car, my kids love to play that. Yeah. So I like the African one. I forgot what it's called, but it's so it's just uplifting. Anyway. It really is. Who put yeah. that on for you and why? I don't know, actually. I'm not sure even who put it on. <laughs> no, no idea. You need to find out. But I can I imagine how when you need to draw on your reserves, yes. you know, that's actually really happy. Yeah. You know, there was song. another one, um, which was funny, that I heard was uh, Show Me The Way To Amarillo. Yeah. Um, and again, really jovial. And funny enough, that was a song they played before we started our half marathon today. So straight away, I was back in that place. <laughs> really? By yeah. pure coincidence? Yes, exactly. That's amazing. What a great coincidence. <laughs> I love it. So not the songs I would think at all. Not the songs I would choose, but yeah, well, that's what I love about this question is it's Mm. never like your favourite song in the whole world. It's always something often embarrassing for people. I love it. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on the Big Travel Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm sure you'll agree that Mel is pretty inspiring and I cannot wait to see what she does next. Thank you so much for listening to the Big Travel Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a review on whatever podcast app you're using. See you soon. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.